This is Lewis Lapham for Lapham's Quarterly, and this is The World in Time. Lead support for this podcast has been provided by Elizabeth Lizette Prince. Additional support was provided by James J. Jimmy Coleman, Jr. This is Lewis Lapham with The World in Time, speaking today with the editor and author, David Wallace Wells, about his eloquent and timely new book, The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. Your book, David, opens with the news that the climate crisis is much worse than we think. And so maybe you can begin with some of the grim facts and figures before you explain why the book is not about the science of warming, but about what warming means to the way we must learn to live on the planet. Why mankind is not only the destroyer of worlds, but also the creator of worlds. Happy to, and so glad to be here talking about this with you. Um, I think the you know just establishing some baselines um, would be helpful. So we're yes. now at about 1.1 degrees of warming, 1.1 degrees Celsius of warming um, from the pre-industrial baseline, um, and that means that we are already today living. Um, in a climate that is hotter than it has ever been in the entire history of humanity. So humans evolved, they developed agriculture, they developed civilization, they developed everything we know of as modern life, social interaction, culture, all of that took place under climate conditions that no longer prevail. We are now living in a world, it is as though we were living on a different world. We've landed on another planet and we have to figure out how many of those things that we developed under those old conditions will endure in the new ones. That's where we are today, just 1.1 degrees. And 1.1 degrees Celsius is how many degrees Fahrenheit? About two. About two. But it's spread unevenly. I mean, it's one thing at the equator and another thing at the pole. Yeah, the Arctic is heating, um, heating up most intensely, which is concerning because you know, one of the biggest things that we're worried about is is the melting of that ice. Um, and that could be happening. Those impacts could be felt more intensely at the poles than um, at the equator, although it's also true that it's not a simple, um, you know, gradation that the closer you get to the equator, the hotter it gets. Different parts of the world are being hit in different ways. And I think that's important to keep in mind whenever you think about climate crisis generally, which is to say it is all-encompassing, Literally, we are enclosed in this climate, and as it is degraded, our lives will be affected no matter where we are, no matter who we are, but it will also be impacting people differentially. So especially those in the global south um, are going to be hit. They're already being hit quite hard. In the coming decades, they will be hit even more hard. And we're just starting to see the impacts in the West, in the wealthy West. Um, People living elsewhere in the world are, have been living with those impacts for quite a while now, and it's only going to get worse for them. But, so, yes, go ahead. Um, so we're at 1.1 degrees now. We're on track by the end of the century to get to 4.3 degrees Celsius of warming. If we don't change course, that's the trajectory we're on. That would mean, um, according but, to us, before you get there, mm-hmm. let's stay a little bit with where we are now, mm-hmm. because every day in the news, I mean, and this has been going on for at least the last 10 years. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's there's flooding in Missouri or there's drought, drought in Pakistan or refugee migrations and coral reefs. And, you know, I mean, it, it's, it's with us. And everywhere. 
and everywhere. Yeah, I, you know, I just wrote a piece about um, California wildfires. Um, I know, I saw that. And, you know, I talked to the mayor of Los Angeles, Eric Garcetti. He's 48 years old. The year he was born, 61,000 acres in California burned. The year he was elected mayor in 2013, it was um, 600,000 acres, a tenfold increase. The year he was reelected mayor, 2017, just four years later, it was 1.2 million acres, so a doubling from just four years before. And last year, the year he was considering running for president, he eventually abandoned that goal, but it burned 1.9 million acres. That's just an increase uh, year over year of 700,000 acres. And the scientists expect that just by 2050, those fires will get at least twice as damaging and possibly four times as damaging. There's responsible science. I think there are reasons to doubt it, reasons to think that it's a little too alarmist, but there's responsible science that suggests in the second half of the century, those fires could get 64 times worse, which would mean something like 75% of California burning every single year. But to take it back to the present, you know, I one um, story that I, I think is really illuminating about where we are and how quickly we come to normalize some of these impacts is the case of Houston. Houston, um, you know, it has been hit by three 500-year storms in the last three years. 500-year storm, it's no longer really a meaningful term, but it gives you a sense of just how out of the bounds of normal experience we are now. This is a storm. 500 years is a period of time that encloses the entire experience of European arrival, settlement, colonialization, revolution in America, civil war, you know, um, World War One, World War Two, the modern era, September 11th. That entire story took place in 500 years. It, this is a storm of such intensity, it should only hit once in that entire period of time. Right. And three of them have hit Houston in the last three years. Um Last summer, we had an unprecedented global heat wave in the north where people were dying in Canada, they were dying in Russia, they were dying in the Middle East, they were dying in Japan. Just this week, there was a report out about um, that heat wave in Japan from last summer saying this was completely impossible without climate change. The temperatures could not have gotten this hot without climate change. This was an unprecedented, deadly heat wave, record-setting heat wave in Japan, un impossible without climate change. It came out during a new record-setting, <laughs> deadly, unprecedented heat wave in Japan, which is happening now in May, the highest temperatures ever recorded in May in Japan. Um, we see these impacts um, already in the Middle East. Um, There's a recent study showing that many of the countries of that region have already lost as much as 30 or 40% of their potential GDP growth over the last few decades because of the impacts of climate change. And many people studying the reason, region think that um, the social disarray, the Islamic terrorism, and the migration crisis that's been produced there is a reflection of climate impacts. Now, none of those are neatly climate stories. No. There are other factors too. But if you increase your odds of... Um, you know, if you go, if you think of stepping on an airplane that has a 0.01% chance of crashing versus stepping on an airplane that has a 20% chance of crashing, that's effectively what climate change has done for all of these stories, not just social disarray and civil war, but extreme weather, um, hurricanes, even heat waves and, and droughts. These are not um, obvious. We've always had heat waves and droughts, but the likelihood that we see more of them and more intense ones has been really changed um, and elevated because of climate change. So for all those reasons, we're seeing this story now 
in real time. And I think that that's quite profound and important to understand because, you know, at least I grew up, I was raised being told that climate change was serious, it was important, but it was distant. Jim Hansen, who's one of the most outspoken alarmist climate scientists, his book for a general audience is called Storms of My Grandchildren. He didn't, you know, he was raising the alarm, and yet he couldn't even bring himself to say these will, there will be major impacts in my own lifetime. And I think we conceptualized the problem for a very long time in those terms as a multi-generational problem, one that was probably due to what had been done over centuries in the past and which was going to unfold in its impacts over centuries in the future. Yes, yeah, so even over millennia, I mean, in, in an, on a geological time scale. I mean, and you make that point, too, that the... I, I'm, I'm born in 1935 in, in California, and the, I think you say somewhere that, that mankind has added the carbon in the atmosphere, 85% of it, that's been added in all of the time that mankind has been on Earth has been added in the last 30 years. Well, no, that 85 is since World War II. All right. Half well, is that, in the last 30 years. That yeah. would be my lifetime. Yeah. I think it's very much the story of a lifetime. And yeah. I think we were, we're, for a long time, we were really mistaken, um, kind of willfully deluded in thinking that it was something that had been done um, in the past. Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm 36 years old. And we have added more carbon to the atmosphere in my lifetime than in all of the millennia right. before, yeah. all of the lifetimes of all the humans that ever lived before me. And we now have about that same amount of time, 30 years, to avoid some of these worst-case scenarios, yeah. which means, God willing, <laughs> that story will also be contained in my lifetime. Yes. And this is, a, this is to me, one of the animate—maybe the animating perspective of the book is to say— this is a drama of such scale that we used to only recognize it in mythology and theology. We have brought the planet from a stable situation to the brink of catastrophe in just 30 years. We now have about that much time to avert those scenarios or find a way to live with the worlds that we have destroyed. That makes us gods in this story. And yeah. um, I think that that is, for many people, that narrative is terrifying. It should be the impacts that we're likely to see over the next few decades are really harrowing. On the other hand, the scale of that impact is ultimately a reflection of our power over the climate. Because if we get to two degrees, three degrees, four degrees this century, it will be because of what we do. And it is a complicated question. What do I mean by we? Um, which we can get into a little bit later, who's responsible and to what degree. But when you take a pers the perspective of the species as a whole, we have our hands on those levers. The story will be written by us in how we decide to emit less carbon, hopefully in relatively short order, emit no carbon. Um, and if we get to a hellish four degrees of warming, where we could have a global GDP that was 30% smaller than it would be without climate change, which is an impact that's twice as deep as the Great Depression, we could have parts of the planet that would be hit by six climate-driven natural disasters at once. We could have agricultural yields that were only half as bountiful as they are today, and we'd be trying to feed probably 50% more people. We could have twice as much war because there's a relationship between temperature and conflict. If we get to that point, four degrees, it will be because of decisions we make, which yeah. is to say, essentially, we will have chosen that future for ourselves. Yes. Um, so the, the questions are not scientific, they're political. Human and political, absolutely. Human and political, yes. And and, But that is some kind of a... That has to be 
collective. I mean, I mm-hmm. mean, it, it, the political. I mean, you and I, we we can try to reduce our carbon in, imprint as individuals and what we eat and how often we travel and so forth, but that won't do it. It, it has to be scales to a global scale because it is a global condition. Yeah, you know, I think Americans often suffer from a kind of climate narcissism in the sense that they they think that the intransigence of and the villainy of the Republican Party, which I completely agree that the Republican Party is villainous, especially on this point, um, but is like the main driver of global climate change. And while it is true that the U.S. is historically responsible for the lion's share of emissions, at the moment, we're only responsible for about 15%. And going forward, that share is actually likely to shrink. Um, I think, you know, China's already about 28, 29%, and that doesn't even count all of the infrastructure they're building across Asia and Africa as part of this Belt and Road Initiative. You know, if, if cement were a country, it would be the world's third worst emitter, and China's now pouring as much cement every three years as the U.S. poured in the entire 20th century. Um, but I do think it's valuable for individuals to live according to their own values. So if you want to feel like a responsible citizen, I think it is psychologically helpful to try to reduce your carbon footprint. I also think it signals to policy leaders, to other um, friends and you know people you know, that you can live responsibly and fulfillingly. But ultimately, I'm with you that this is not a problem that can be solved through individual action because it's just too big a problem for that. And my thinking there comes from the basic truth that in order to stabilize the climate at any temperature level, which is to say at 2 degrees, at 3 degrees, at 4 degrees, at 5 degrees, at 6 degrees, at temperature levels that you and I would consider possibly unlivable from the vantage of today, will require not just reducing our carbon emissions, but zeroing out on them entirely. Because if we're at 5 degrees and we're still adding even just a sliver of the carbon that we're adding now, we will still be heating the planet additionally. Yes, and also the, the trouble is that the progression changes it's not arithmetic. It's, it's there are, especially it's, when you get north of four degrees. There yeah. are some things that could be triggered that really take things out of no, control. But, but, but that happens with yeah. those kinds of numbers. I mean, that's the acceleration. Yeah, and so if you and I went vegan, if everybody we knew never flew again, even if everybody in the entire United States went vegan and never flew again and drove electric cars we're still very, very far from zeroing out on carbon. If we really need to zero out, that means unless you think that 30 years from now, you can imagine the entire planet not flying by jet, the entire planet not eating meat, the entire planet driving exclusively electric cars. I think that one is a little easier to imagine, but the first two let's stick with. Um, That means innovation in those areas. It means regulation and um, litigation to force manufacturers to, for instance, develop carbon neutral planes, electric planes, and then build them and then airline manufacturers airline operators to fly them. Or it requires um, farmers and agribusiness to be growing crops in a different way that doesn't impose such a um, huge carbon cost. And in each of these sectors, there are actually solutions. I mean, the, 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 car- the electric plane is a little bit far away, although they have flown one across the I think it's the Atlantic. It might have been the Pacific. It was a small plane. It wasn't a big jet, but they've already done that. Um, In agriculture, just by changing the way that your cows graze on a field can turn the production of beef from a carbon source, which it is today, into a carbon sink. Just feeding your cows 
seaweed, a small amount of seaweed could cut their methane emissions by 95 or 99%. So this is a huge problem. We can't solve it in any silver bullet way. Um, we also can't solve it through individual action. But if we actually took seriously the political and policy problem of meeting this issue wherever it, wherever it lies, um, in most cases, it wouldn't be all that challenging to solve. The difficult challenge is the political one, which is how do we mobilize yeah. and um, change our priorities such that we are organizing everything we do on this planet to fight carbon emissions because right. at this point we're basically organizing everything we do to produce carbon. <laughs> yes. We need to reverse that. And, that. and again, it's a collective problem because it, the we that we're talking about is a very large and all-embracing we. I mean, we have to be able to persuade that, you know, people of different cultures, you know, the Chinese, the Indians, Africa, you know, I mean, it's, it's a global response and that, but if we can set an example and, and the, uh, that certainly helps. I think it's, I think America has a moral obligation to do that um, because of the historical responsibility that we've had for this. But I do think that, you know, I hear from a lot of liberals and environmentalists who are really concerned with the, um, inertia of our politics in the U.S. I personally see those politics moving quite quickly on climate, although it's also not quickly as quickly as I would like. But the bigger problem to me is really the global problem that you're talking yeah, about. Yeah, that's um, right. And what illustrates that very neatly is that, you know, the Paris Accords were just signed a few years ago, 2016, and no nation is on track to meet those commitments that they made under the Paris Accords. Not a single nation. Um, many of those nations are run by governments that are considerably to the left of the United States, considerably more green in their rhetoric than we are, and yet they're still failing. In part, I think that's because nations have a kind of um, perverse incentive structure here where even if they agree that we're in a crisis and we need to address it, each individual nation is motivated in part to slow walk action and let the rest of the world clean up the mess. Now, I think some of that is changing a little bit. Um, there is some new economic conventional wisdom that's emerged just over the last few years that shows that faster action on climate will actually be much better for everybody than slower action. But, you know, I think about, um, take for instance, California wildfires, you know, these are climate impacts that are being wrought in the state because of global warming. Now, California yeah. can be an incredible climate pioneer. They could do absolutely everything in their power to eliminate their own emissions. It won't meaningfully change what amount of wildfires they have in the next decade, because mostly that will be determined by actors elsewhere in the world. And in that case, what is their motivation? I think this great, one of the great tragedies of climate change is that if you had to imagine a threat that was big enough, intense enough, all-encompassing enough that treated us all, I won't say quite indiscriminately because there are differences in the way that different nations will be hit, but um, hit all of us intensely um, to call into action, call into being a true network of global cooperation, climate change would be it. And yet we're seeing that crisis at a time when we're retreating from that way of looking at the world, from any idea of a positive sum approach to politics, any idea of true global governance. And in fact, in, in Brazil, maybe most dramatically, in Australia, certainly in the US, we're seeing the rise of this kind of nativistic national self-interest, which is going to make action on, on climate much, much harder. Yes, the, the, the big thing that we're against, is, which you say, is, is uh, the religion that we make out of 
capitalism and the market and, and the idea that that's the only world, the way the world can, can work and that capitalism is a divine uh, natural law that we can't violate and that the, our whole notions of prosperity and profit and pleasure are you know, built into the uh, notion that uh, money talks. Yeah, I mean, I, I and only money talks. Yeah, I, in the book, I, I quote um, Frederick Jameson, who he's sort of quote. I think not really quoting someone, but in a, in a piece he wrote, um, said he heard someone say, um, you know, it's easier to imagine the end of the world than the end of capitalism. Yes, and um, that's the problem. It's very much the problem, and it also feels to me, even now, sort of true. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, I and I say that as someone who you know, I grew up in the '90s. I have a very particular cultural upbringing. I'm a New Yorker. I've lived, you know, middle class, upper middle class life in one of the richest cities in the richest country in the world. And I came of age as a teenager in a time after the end of the Cold War when it really did seem as though, um, you know, I would argue, it I would have argued with you if you said that market forces were pure goods, um, you know, or pure force for good, or that globalization was the same. And yet, I did really believe as a teenager and in a certain way still at my core do believe that the future should bring us progress and that we should over certainly long stretches of time be able to count on that. And my cerebral side now sees those promises as much, much more tenuous, um, maybe even impossible to sustain over the decades ahead. And yet I still want to see those promises fulfilled. I almost think it would be hard for me to live in a world a few decades now, a few decades from now, when those promises had evaporated and find real fulfillment. And I think that that's a reflection of exactly the problem that you're talking about, which is that I've been trained so much really to see growth, just to say it like nakedly, right. as the measure of human well-being that I'm not sure that I could adjust to a world in which it had been taken away. And that is the world that we're heading for. If, it, if we're at four degrees at the end of the century, there will be huge parts of the world, economists say, really the whole equatorial band and many of the nations in the kind of mid-latitudes where there won't be any prospect of economic growth at all. Right. And, but our, again, you, you put the, the two lines on a graph together, economic growth and carbon added to the atmosphere, and they... And they, they it's the they, same story. It's the same story. Yeah. So that continuation of that story isn't going to get us very far or it isn't going to be able to reduce the uh, rise in temperature. Certainly not as it's as capitalism is working Currently today. conceived. Yeah, okay. certainly not. I mean, right. I, you know, the IMF recently came out with a report, I think it was two or three weeks ago now, IMF, no, no enemy of big business and globalization and financial capitalism um, that said that we are currently subsidizing fossil fuels as much as $5.3 trillion yeah. globally. Now, you know, the, the, that calculation is a little misleading because most of those quote unquote subsidies are just the fact that we've inefficiently priced carbon. So there's environmental damage that's not being priced into the, the cost. But there are some significant direct subsidies. And it's completely unconscionable that we're doing that. It's also, honestly, it's a distortion of capitalism. I mean, if, if these are companies that are being propped up by these subsidies, they shouldn't 
you know, they, sh they shouldn't be propped up. Um, and by some calculus, you know, using the carbon capture technology that exists today, this, these equations are a little misleading, but I think it's useful to give you a sense of how much this is a matter of what our priorities are rather than what we're capable of. Yeah. It, we could completely neutralize all of the carbon emissions that we're producing now every year on the planet, which would mean adding no new carbon concentration to the atmosphere, no additional warming. We could do that without changing anything about the way that we're doing our industry, our agriculture, our infrastructure, our energy. We could do that for about $3 trillion a year using technology that exists today. So if it's a more, again, a more complicated than this equation implies. But if we were just to redirect those $5 trillion into the areas supporting that carbon capture, on some level, in theory, we could have significantly solved that problem already. And I think that while I don't want to depend on carbon capture entirely, I think that's foolish for many reasons, um, having to do with the, what it requires technically and, and, and politically and all that. Um, and the fact that it, even using those machines, it's more expensive to take carbon out of the atmosphere than it is to put it in, in the first place. Um, I still think it teaches you a little bit about how much this really is just a matter of our priorities. And for now several centuries, especially in the West, and globally for at least 50 years, we have really, really prioritized economic growth powered by fossil fuels. That has been the main driver of public policy and to certain in certain ways our culture, um, our sense of our place in nature, our sense of the history and, and the future. And that's one of the reasons that um, the part of the book that most excite me, excites me is sort of turning the page on, on the discussion of the direct scientific impacts and thinking a little bit about what it would mean for our sense of economics, for our sense of technology and what it's meant for us, for our intuition about our place in the natural world and our relationship to it, for our sense of politics and our geopolitics and our sense of obligation to one another, um, whether we feel we owe climate reparations to those who are suffering. All these questions, I think, um, have not yet really yet begun to be asked, and I think they are deeply profound, perhaps just as profound as the direct scientific climate impacts. Oh, oh they are. I mean, I mean, yes. I mean, you talk about uh, consumer capitalism. I mean, if you're, you know, you have to change your idea of, of, of happiness. If happiness is simply the amassment of more stuff, uh, if that's what you mean by the pursuit of happiness, the and we know that that doesn't really bring happiness. Right. I mean the. Um, <laughs> I mean Americans, are, you know, as you say, we're, we're drowning in stuff, and we're, we're so miserable. <laughs> yeah. Right. We've got more stuff than anybody in the history of the the world, and and meanwhile, we got large numbers of people on opioids. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, it's it's not making us happy. And one of the things that that um, consumer capitalism system teaches us is that we define ourselves politically through what we buy and what yeah. we choose and how yeah. we live yeah. and not through our politics. And right. I think that's been a real problem. I still see it even on the environmental left now where I get asked a lot about how you can change your, your individual behavior, what we should be buying, how we should be eating. And as I said before, you know, to the extent that you want to embody your own values in your own life, that's worthwhile. But it's, it's not the solution to this problem. No, no. And to think that like if we buy the right T-shirt or we shop at the right supermarket or even if we choose the right pop star to like, which is another kind of pernicious part of the story, um, that we're sort of absolved of political responsibility, I think that's a... a a really corrosive feature of our culture, and it's one. It's the market has used that tool to um, push us away from considering more systemic change, which is really what we need to put together. 
And if we don't come up with a sort of an alternate, really, way of life, or an alternate way of thinking, uh, the destruction will continue uh, at an ever-increasing space. So that if it costs us $3 trillion today to make some of these adjustments, 10 years from now, if we don't make any of the adjustments, it'll cost $500 trillion. Yeah, I mean, you know, yeah. if, if we had decided globally to start cutting carbon um, in the year 2000 when Al Gore, you know, won the, um, the majority of votes in the, in the, in the American election, um, which I think will be remembered as a real major, I was not an enormous fan of Al Gore, but will be remembered as a major, um, a major turning point in, in human history. Um, we would have had to cut 3% of our carbon emissions every year um, to stay below this two degree level of warming, which scientists consider the threshold of catastrophe and many island nations of the world call genocide. We're now at a place in 2019 where we're going to need to cut 10% per year. And if we wait another 10 years, we're going to need to cut 30% per year. But the number of infrastructure projects that are going to be made necessary on top of the uh, car decarbonization is growing just as rapidly. So if we had started in 2000, we wouldn't need to be talking about building seawalls. We wouldn't need to be talking about yeah. um, managing a migration crisis, which the UN estimates will be as big as 200 million climate refugees by the year 2050. They say it's possible it could be as many as 1 billion by 2050, which is today as many people as live in North and South America combined. We wouldn't have to be dealing with those impacts because we would have avoided them. And we're putting ourselves in a situation down the line where not only are the curves of decarbonization much steeper and therefore much harder to achieve, but also to be dealing with the impacts that we now have made inevitable. We're going to have we have, we're going to have to be investing much more dramatically in um, adaptation and mitigation, um, which is, uh, you know, I mean, just the sheer cost is dramatic, but it also means that the earth will be much, much more dramatically transformed than we would have needed to uh, a generation ago. And, I, you know, I now think that kind of transformation is inevitable because either climate change will do it, by redrawing our... Yeah, um, or catastrophe of some sort. Or we will do it, if we manage yeah. some miraculously to avert some of these um, terrible outcomes, it'll be because the world now has, is plastered with, um, with uh, solar power plants and carbon capture plants, and we have completely reimagined our way of building infrastructure, built an entirely new way of traveling through the air, imagines a completely different approaches to agriculture. So even if we sort of miraculously, I think it's beyond our politics as they're constituted now, but even if we did manage to take the amount of, you know, initiative and, and yeah. bring about the amount of change that we need to avoid two degrees of warming, the world would still be completely redrawn by the kind of photo negative image of climate change because it would have been done at such a scale that every corner of the earth was impacted. And just to give you a sense of that scale, you know, the UN, their climate change body, it's a bit conservative actually, but I think it is the best sort of baseline shared conversation um, starter. Yeah. Um, and they say to avoid this level of warming two degrees, we would need a World War II scale mobilization um, globally they say, the Secretary General says, we would need to start that this year, 2019. And I think, you know, you and I can agree, not only are we not doing that, we're not no. close to doing that. No. Um, so I think, 
inevitably we're going to get north of two degrees and then having to be dealing with some of the really dramatic impacts that are awaiting us there. There's also the comforting delusion on the part of some of us that uh, that if you're rich enough, you can escape. That, I mean, the world, one way of dividing the world would be into the, into the world of the, na- the nation of the rich and the desert of the poor, right? I mean, so that there are somehow people can afford it. They, they will escape into better climates or more heavily protected gated communities or into some kind of um, singularity that is being involved in, in Silicon Valley. I mean, you listen to these people that say that with with a new form of genetic meso- med- medicine and with the new forms of, of putting chips in your brain and the... Uh, you've heard all of that. Tell, yeah. <laughs> tell, tell me about some of that stuff. I mean, it, that... If any of that were to work, but it would only be available to people who were very, very rich. Yeah, well, I mean, I think, you know, to be completely honest, I think that the delusion is much more pervasive than the very rich, which is to say, I think up until quite recently, most Americans believed that they would be spared the biggest impacts of climate change. Um, And in general, in the West, we have been sheltered from some impacts that have hit the rest of the world already and are not yet as focused on the issue as we should be because. Not only have we been spared up to this point, but we imagine that in the future we will be able to buy and engineer our way out of disaster. But right, just yeah. to give an example there before talking about the more dramatic um, fantasies, you know, a few months ago I was having lunch with a really distinguished climate scientist who's been involved in many of the IPCC, um, the UN IPCC projects, and has been now advising the city of New York on climate adaptation. And I asked him if we would build a seawall in New York. Um, and he said, absolutely. The real estate in lower Manhattan in particular is just far too expensive to let it drown. But he said, you know, you have to understand infrastructure projects of that scale take a really long time to build, usually about 30 years, something of the scale that we're talking about. And that means that if we started today, it would not be done in time to save Howard Beach and other parts of southern Brooklyn and Queens. And he said, now on top of that, the city already knows that. You'll start to see it in the way that they talk about these areas very soon in the next few years. You'll start to see them choosing not to invest money in infrastructure repair, uh, doing subway repair, that kind of thing. A few years after that, you'll start to see them talking about, you know, talking to homeowners saying, you may be able to live in this home until the end of your life, but you won't be able to leave it to your children. Now, this is New York City, one of the wealthiest cities in the world, and this man is not at all an alarmist. He is a um, one of the most pedigreed climate scientists on the planet, and he is saying that even here we will have to be giving up some significant amount of our landmass in just the next 30 years. So all of us who live here, including me, I'm a lifelong New Yorker, um, when I walk down the street on that, those concrete streets, I look up at those steel buildings and I think to myself, intuitively I think, I live outside of nature. How could climate change come from me? Um, That's obviously a delusion, but I think it's a delusion that we're we're all of us living in, and we should probably adjust to a much more dynamic understanding of how the modern world and nature interact, such that we didn't build our way out of nature, we didn't build a fortress against nature, we provoked it to be at war with us. And we may endure, I think we will, our civilization is strong and resilient, we will find ways forward, but we will be doing battle with some of these impacts as far as we can see down the line. But to me, the fact that the wealthiest people in the U.S. in particular 
namely the people in Silicon Valley, um, are so disinterested in fighting that war is an incredible indictment of their narcissism. Yeah. It is also, to me, literally confusing because these are people who are, for all the reasons and in all the ways that you lay out, invested in the idea of, if not totally eternal life, then life extension and elevated life that makes them into something like gods. They want to be seen as gods. They want to be seen as world historical figures. They want to live close to forever. They want to be remembered in that way as world changers. They are better capitalized than anybody since the robber barons in the U.S. and than anybody else who has ever lived in the entire history of the world. And yet they seem much more interested in getting a couple of spaceships to Mars than they are in actually saving, you know, solving the existential crisis that we are living through today ourselves on this planet. If you want to see yourself as a god and you have that kind of money and that kind of power, why not devote yourself to this pressing, pressing crisis? And, you know, like I said, it's an indictment, but I also find it genuinely confusing. You know, Mark Zuckerberg wants to, quote unquote, solve all disease. That is a noble philanthropic aim. I don't know enough about his foundation to judge how plausible, how helpful its initiatives are. But why focus on that when you have climate change coming for us immediately in the next decade? Why worry about the impact of asteroids, which are likely to be centuries down the line, when we're dealing with a truly existential crisis right now? And I don't use that phrase existential crisis lightly. You know, there's one paper I write about in the book that studied just the impact of air pollution just between the threshold of 1.5 degrees and 2 degrees. And the authors found that just that extra half degree of warming, which keep in mind is not a level of warming that we're likely to avoid, 2 degrees is about our best case scenario, just that half degree extra of warming just through the impact of air pollution would kill an additional 153 million people. And that is 25 holocausts. Yeah, right. That is our best case scenario. I don't think it's at all an exaggeration to call this an existential crisis. And yet all of these people who are trying to empower themselves to rewrite their history books and make themselves its heroes are basically disinterested in it. And I, I like I said, it's it's abhorrent. It's horrifying. It's also just genuinely confusing. But I think I get some way to understanding it when I think, you know, they are engineering people in their mindsets, and they basically want to only attack problems that they see as effectively engineering problems. That's one reason why we've seen Facebook being so, you know, stumbling in dealing with the political impacts of what it's done, yeah, right. because that's not really an engineering problem. It's a political problem. Um, and I think that they also on some level feel maybe a more intense sense of the injustice of how they have accumulated all of this wealth and power than even those people who they've exploited and profited off of. And so they really do see something like a class war zombie apocalypse coming for them right around the corner and they want to get out. So they have these elaborate estates. They have doomsday bunkers. They but they buy islands. They buy islands, yeah. They want to go to Mars. And it's just the Mars thing is especially bonkers to me because, you know, I'm – 
in a, in a vacuum, I'm all for exploration of space. I think that's a good thing. But Mars is so much less hospitable than the Earth will ever be, no matter how degraded we make it. So if what you're trying to do is engineer some kind of biosphere on Mars, it will be much, much easier, much more cheap, and much, easy, much more scalable to do that on a degraded Earth than it will be to manage it on Mars, which yeah. makes me think that, you know, the vanity and the ego of it is really a huge driving part of that story. And that's terrible, too. Well, I, I tell you, this is a thoughtful and, and uh, illuminating book that you've written, David. And the, uh, I'm grateful to you. And I'm, I'm sure that anybody who reads it will will feel the same. The, the um, But the important thing that you point out is that the the biosphere, we're all in it. Yeah. And it's not something that only happens to mammoths or that we see in a museum diorama, right? I mean, it, it's it's here and now, and it and it has impact on everything. I mean, I I think it has impact on our culture. It has impact on our political discourse. I mean, you know, the physical environment has been degraded over the last thirty odd years, but so is the. In my view, the, the the political environment. Absolutely. I mean, and they they go together. Yeah, I mean, if you yeah, were you know. to imagine what politics would look like in a dramatically degraded world, um, beset by resource scarcity, you would imagine um, a disavowal of positive sum cooperative politics and a return to zero sum self interest and. That's what we're seeing today. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, I'm not someone who's going to go so far as to say that Donald Trump or Jair Bolsonaro is the creation of climate change, but I think it is inevitable that if we continue warming, at least for a time, we're likely to see some more figures like that who use that rhetoric and have that perspective, and that's quite damaging. But I think you know one thing we haven't talked about, the all-encompassing nature of it, it's also all-pervading. You know, um, yeah. Temperature and pollution both affect cognitive performance. They affect rates of mental illness. They affect um, how children develop as children, but also in the womb. Um, they affect rates of autism and ADHD. Um, they, I mentioned the, the effect on, on conflict, which is for every half degree of warming, you can expect between a 10 and 20% increase in conflict. So that happens at the state level, but it also happens at the individual level. Um, so rates of murder and rape and domestic assault go up when it's hotter out. And we're walking into a world where those conditions are likely to be um, the everyday ones. Just to give a sense of what that means, in 2003, an unbelievable, unprecedented European summer, 70,000 people died in a summer heat wave. There were a few days where as many as 2,000 people died every day. Um, and that summer will be, by the end of this century, a normal summer. It was a freakish outlier summer that devastated the entire European continent, and that will be the baseline. There will be summers that are exceptionally hot in that environment, which mean dramatically higher death tolls. Um, and the impacts that we see, you know, sort of below the threshold of, of death are going to be just as dramatic. So the impacts on crime and mental illness and, and all that stuff. And um, when you start to when you start to piece together all of this research, which is relatively new, um, of exactly how climate is affecting all of these areas, it really does paint a picture of um, an all-encompassing, inescapable story. We are all living in this system. It is careening in one direction, and we're being carried 
down that road with it. Um, I think, you know, as I said earlier, humans are adaptable, resilient. Our civilization is too. We will have a civilization yeah. at the end yeah. of the century. Well, but what, what kind, what form, what will it look yeah. like? What will its values be? Um, those are really big questions. What will it mean if, if we have a billion climate refugees? That really will mean the entire equatorial band of the planet will have been totally emptied out. Now, think about the way that a million Syrian refugees completely scrambled European politics and then multiply that factor by 100 or 200 or 1,000 and you start to see, um, you know, the map of the world as we know today will look very, very different. And by yeah. that, I don't just mean national borders. I mean everything we take for granted about as being features of modern life are likely to be transformed. Yes, and, and suddenly it will become politically and environmentally correct to kill the poor. Well, I think in a certain way we're already doing that. I do too. We, we, we could go on for a long time, but thank you very, very much, uh, David, for talking with us today about The Uninhabitable Earth, Life After Warming. It's, 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 a, it's a marvelous book. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's great to be here. Lapham's Quarterly brings voices from the past up to the microphone of the present. Save more than 30% off the cover price and subscribe today for only $49. Visit laphamsquarterly.org slash podcast for more details.